Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now. Welcome to my first ever interview format on All Things. That's right, I have some guests with me today who I am eager to introduce to you. I felt like this episode would be best offered to you through their words and their perspective. But before introducing them, let me give you some background as to what today's episode is all about. Over the last year, you may have noticed something that I have been seeing both in the headlines and in the lives of my friends and people in my community. There seemed to be a noticeable uptick in publicized anti-Asian sentiments and ideas, as well as anti-Asian crimes or acts of violence committed against members of the Asian American Pacific Islander population. Several months ago, I asked my local friends, is this a thing? Is this happening in your life? Is this going on? And each one who I asked said yes. And of course, we also have an Asian American daughter, and she's been sharing stories with me throughout the last year that this is, in fact, a reality. So for months now, I've been wanting to do this podcast, and I'm really glad that we're finally getting around to it, especially in light of more recent headlines, including the horrific shooting in Atlanta last week, where a gunman opened fire and killed eight people, including six women of Asian descent. I know that shooting remains under investigation, but what I also know is that it really served to heighten the anxiety and the fear and the worry that Asian Americans are feeling and that that has been on the heels of a year that has already caused tremendous anxiety. After that, and that headline is far from the only one. Of course, it's not an isolated incident. Just last Wednesday, an elderly Chinese woman was attacked in broad daylight on Market Street in San Francisco. Her attacker was actually fleeing the site where he had attacked another elderly Vietnamese man. Both elderly victims are bruised and battered, but it does look like they will make a full recovery. We've seen other comparable attacks increase over the last year. In January, an 84-year-old Thai American man was pushed to the ground in San Francisco, and he died from his injuries a few days later. The Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism reports that hate crimes against Asian Americans surged by nearly 150% last year. One group called Stop AAPI Hate has received more than 2,800 firsthand accounts nationwide of attacks or other abuse directed at people of Asian descent between just March and December of 2020. So, for example, in New York City in 2019, there were only three reported hate crimes against Asian Americans, whereas in 2020, there were 28. A Pew Research study shows that 40% of Americans, so 4 in 10, say that it's more common for them since the start of the pandemic to hear people expressing racist views against Asians. So those are the current headlines. That's where we are. That's our current condition. But what maybe most listeners don't realize is that anti-Asian sentiments and crimes and even laws are not new in the United States. In fact, they've really been the norm for us for almost two centuries now. So back in the 1850s, many Chinese immigrated here to work in mining, as well as to help build the Transcontinental Railroad. In fact, one of my daughters and I are reading right now a novel, a historical novel about this part of history. We're reading about what it was like for Chinese men to make the journey to the United States with the goal of improving their financial situation by laboring on the railroads. And our eyes have really been opened to the terrible and inhumane working conditions that they endured for very little pay. 
And what I'm learning is that even then, there was fear amongst others in the United States that the Chinese population was, quote, taking jobs from the American population. So there's some really tragic stories from this time in our American history when huge numbers of Chinese immigrants were murdered across the country and their homes or their settlements burned to the ground. In 1871, for example, rioters killed 10% of the Chinese population in Los Angeles. In 1885, mobs in Wyoming murdered 28 Chinese coal miners and they burnt down the city's Chinatown. Even here in Denver, locally, our Chinese population numbered four in 1870, but it grew to 238 by 1880, so in that 10 years time span from four to 238, as Chinese men migrated for mining jobs here in Colorado. Denver's Chinatown then was located in what is now known as Lodo. That's where Chinese residents were able to participate in commerce and set up their own businesses. But as anti-Chinese sentiment spread across the United States, it also grew here in Colorado, and local journalists suggested that the Chinese population was to blame for social ills such as gambling and prostitution and opium. Chinatown became a scapegoat, and in October of 1880, Denver had what's known as the Bloody Riot where ultimately one Chinese man was hanged and many were injured and almost all Chinese-owned properties in Denver were destroyed at that time. In 1882, the United States passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which essentially ended immigration to the United States for the Chinese, and ethnic Chinese migrants who were already living here became ineligible for citizenship, and that law remained in place until 1943. And of course, during World War II, in the wake of the Pearl Harbor bombing, President Franklin Roosevelt issued an executive order that was in 1942, creating internment camps for all Japanese people living in the United States, regardless of their citizenship. So even if they were already American citizens, more than 120,000 Japanese Americans were taken from their homes and sent to live in camps for the duration of World War II. The camps were basically barracks. There's some here in Colorado, actually. They were surrounded by barbed wire. Their buildings had no heat. Families had no personal space or privacy. And when the war finally ended, they returned home to their homes, which had been ransacked, burglarized, vandalized, often with racial slurs painted across the fronts of their homes. And then more recently, we have these various wars throughout the 20th century, which have definitely adversely affected the Asian American population residing here in the United States. The impact of, for example, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, of course, World War II, is that people of Asian descent or Asian immigrants have been seen as sort of suspicious, under suspect, or even seen as less than human, worthy of mistreatment because they're seen as the enemy We've even seen that really recently since 9-11. After the 9-11 attack, South Asians have endured mistreatments based solely on their, uh, their appearance. So suffice it to say, Asian immigrants and people of Asian descent have always had a somewhat tenuous existence here in the United States. And I just want to say up front at the beginning of this episode, I know it's insufficient to refer to the entire AAPI population as if it's a monolith. The population is a huge group of people with diverse backgrounds, all kinds of ethnicities and nationalities and experiences here in the United States. And those experiences are unique and varied. And there are other issues at play, things like social class, education, and the various sectors of society that different people groups find themselves in. We could go in so many directions with this particular podcast. I know we're just going to scratch the surface. But my hope on this episode of all things, my desire is to simply start the conversation 
I want to broach this topic for my listeners who have maybe never considered what life is like for the AAPI community in general, and more specifically, how it has changed during the pandemic. So to that end, I would like to welcome my friends to this podcast, and I'm just going to let, I have two gals sitting here with me, I'm going to let them introduce themselves, and um, friends, if you could just tell us a bit about your own ethnicity, your own ethnic backgrounds, your families, what you do right now, anything you'd like us to know, please share. Okay, well, Thanks, Jen, so much for having us onto this podcast. I'm really, really excited. I am Korean-American, and I've had kind of an interesting journey where I was born in South Korea, but I spent my elementary school years here in the States, and I was living in Florida for a couple years and Texas for a couple years, and it was definitely... I. I was kind of like the odd person out. I was maybe one of five Asian kids in a grade of 90 kids um, who were mostly white. And then for middle school, I actually moved back to South Korea and it was just kind of this weird um, change where my whole world just seemed to turn upside down. And my my parents are still currently living, living in South Korea. And for work right now, I work as an educator. I am a teacher. Thanks. Hi, I'm Miriam, and I'm also Korean-American, um, and I am originally from California. Uh, I grew up in um, San Ramon, which is a town that's kind of like uh, Parker right now. Um, when I was growing up, there weren't a lot of Asian kids in my school, um, and so I also felt like the odd one out. Um yeah, and basically what I do right now is I'm a, I'm a medical student here studying osteopathic medicine. And is your family still living in California? Yes, they are, yeah. Okay. Uh, we moved to a different city a few, I would say maybe about like five years ago. Um, and, and it's, you know, they're having a great time there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really appreciate you guys sharing your experiences with us. Um, that's one reason I felt like an interview would be so helpful is just to hear your heart and your voice and, and what life has been like for you. Um, I think that the truth is probably many listeners to all things have not ever considered the realities or the uniqueness of being an Asian American and how that might be different from their experience as a white American or a member of the majority culture. So um, I think, you know, this might be an aha moment for some of the listeners of what you're telling me it's different in what way. So if you could maybe just share with us um, what... When did you first realize that perhaps your life is different than the lives of your majority culture friends and classmates? Mm, I think for me, it was during like first grade. Um, so that was when we went to the the multi-purpose room to eat lunch um, at like tables with our classmates and stuff. Um, and so I remember bringing like rice and I did not like kimchi at the time, but I brought like some other kind of like meat dish or something that I really liked that was Korean. And when I, oh, and I also brought like this barley tea Mm -hmm. because that was like the only drink that I drank when I was little. Mm -hmm. I like didn't drink water. It was like only tea. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so like when I opened it up, um, that was when my friends kind of looked at my food and they're like, what is that? Um, and I remember at that moment, like feeling some shame and Mm -hmm. feeling like, oh, like 
maybe this wasn't like the right food to bring. Um, and that was when I felt like very different. Mm. And that was kind of when I knew, okay, like maybe I'm, I am not similar to everyone else. Mm. Um, they also thought that like my, the tea that I drank was, um, they asked me if it was pee. <laughs> yeah. Cause it was like yellow and it was a little foamy. <laughs> so it looked, it totally looked like pee. Um, and so that after that I started bringing juice, wow. uh, like Kool-Aid and the, and stuff. So, mm. um, that is actually pretty common among, uh, the Asian American community and other immigrant communities. Um, it's called the lunchbox moment. Uh, when you bring your lunch and the smell like is different and people kind of start questioning like what you bring. Um, and that's something that. I like is that I've noticed mm. among my other um, Asian American peers. Yeah. So yeah, that was that was that was when I I knew that I wasn't similar to everyone else. Right. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that story. The lunchbox moment. I mean, you say that like it's something that's known amongst. <laughs> people of Asian descent like it's like this code thing inside your community like yeah oh, what's your lunchbox moment like what's your lunchbox moment like mm-hmm. whereas those of us who are in majority culture we don't ever have a lunchbox moment and so um and I, I can imagine how painful that felt like as a first grader when you want to blend in and yeah it, it's just it's a painful reality so thank you for sharing that with us I, I've learned something from you already so thank you what about for you? Um, I don't think I had like a specific moment per se, but I think living in Texas, I just always remember feeling like I was different and I felt this internal desire to fit in. I felt this internal desire to assimilate. Mm-hmm. And I remember even when my dad was dropping me off for school, I would be really embarrassed because he was Asian and everybody else's parents were white. So I would just, I would not wave to him. I would kind of ignore him and just go to school. Mm-hmm. And there were just a few moments where I had just internalized, even just like seeing on media, like you never saw Asian faces growing up so mm-hmm. I just equated white as being beautiful so mm-hmm. I remember growing up I was like I wish I was white so I could be pretty um mm-hmm. so I just remember even with my like I grew up in South Korea but I would always ask my friends like oh like I don't sound like I'm from South Korea like doesn't it sound like you know I sound like everybody else so I just remember having this deep desire to always fit in to always assimilate and I wanted to be white essentially when I was a kid because yeah, white was considered normal and it was considered beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if you can flesh that out even a little bit more for us. Maybe an experience in high school or conversations with your parents or friends or um, help us, I don't know, see things a little bit more from your perspective. Is there, a, is there another story that you could share or reality um, like when would you talk to your parents about that or did they notice um or did conversations with other girlfriends about this reality or how did it evolve over time maybe to put it another way how did those feelings evolve over time for you I think going back to South Korea was an interesting moment for me because Mm. basically I I wanted to be in America and I wanted to be white but then in sixth grade my parents decided that we were going to move back to South Korea And I think I had internalized, like, America was better. Like, Mm. all these things were better. Mm. And I felt like I was kind of looking down upon my friends who had an accent or who had these things. And I was like, oh, I'm better because I'm Americanized. I 
I don't know, I watch movies that's part of, like, mainstream white culture, so I don't know how to, like, internalize that belief. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Um, that's very interesting that you, that you bring that up because um, I remember feeling similar to that, even though I've never, like, lived in Korea. Like, when my parents would watch things... Um, like Korean media, like I'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm above that. You know, I'm, I'm living in America. Like I don't need to like watch these things or I don't need to eat Korean food. Um, and I, I do agree with like, you know, the sentiments that you felt about like wanting to be white as well. And that was something that I remember wanting for, since I was little. Mm. And, um, I had, like, a crush on this guy (laughs) in, like, maybe, like, third grade. Um, But I also remember being a little, like, self-conscious of that, too, because I didn't look like the rest of my friends. And Mm. I I didn't look white. I didn't look like someone that I think even at that age I felt like, oh, he couldn't have a crush on me because I'm I'm Asian. I I have different shaped eyes. Mm. Um, my nose bridge is flat, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. And I think the thing that really solidified it though, was when someone asked me if I had eyelids, um, because I have, uh, monolids. Wow. So my eyes, they, when they crease, they kind of hide. Um, and so someone like, I remember someone asking me if I had eyelids Mm. because I didn't have that crease. Uh, and so that was, that was, that was the solidifying moment for me. Yeah. Yeah. That was maybe fifth or sixth grade. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thanks for sharing those stories. So just to be really, uh, raw from the majority culture perspective, and, and we've had these conversations before, but, um, I think many in many white Americans perceive Asian Americans to be sort of the great example of the American dream. You know, you can immigrate here and you can work hard and study hard and have it all. And I think the perception oftentimes is that maybe even Asian Americans receive preferred treatment, you know, some sort of fast track to scholarships or to certain jobs or a certain way of life. And so I know that in conversations where only white Americans are present, I'm hearing these kinds of things like, there, there's no, there's no possibility that Asian Americans experience racism. Have you seen, have you seen how successful they are? Have you seen how many scholarships they get? Like, have you seen Jeremy Lin? You know, there's just these, (laughs) these anecdotes where it's like, this is an impossibility. So I think for many listeners, the idea that there is racism pervasive, um, there are more, you know, many experiences that you have that are racist is, is eye-opening or maybe even somewhat unbelievable. Um, and so my hope is that this episode can just sort of help, um, open, open eyes, um, to that. But I'm wondering if you guys could speak to that, this quote model minority perception and maybe explain if you wouldn't mind to the listeners what that is and, um, and what that feels like to be sort of lumped into, into that, that phrase that is not helpful, but widely used or maybe not used, but believed. Um, so I think for me, like the model minority myth means, I think first of all, it assumes 
like you were saying earlier, Jen, that um, Asians are a monolith. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is definitely not the case. Um, and so, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it kind of assumes that Asians are this big, just amorphous group mm. that can succeed at anything that, you know, or it's just really smart. Um, I kind of liken it to, you know, we are the example that people point to when, um, when asking about like oppression or things like that. Um, and so it is definitely a myth because, you know, that like everyone in the Asian American communities definitely different and even within like the Asian American communities there are so many different like people from different ethnic backgrounds and even that is like you know there's even like discrimination among the different like ethnic groups within Asian Americans so mm-hmm. I think it definitely reduces something very complex into something very general mm-hmm. um, and that can be very damaging mm-hmm. And yeah, like Miriam, you were saying, I think it is very, very complex with the history of immigration of Asian Americans. Like, if you break it down um, by ethnicity and not just Asian Americans as a whole, you will see East Asians succeeding. You will see Koreans, Chinese, Japanese succeeding. Mm-hmm. If you look at the Filipinos, Laos, Cambodians, the people who were essentially um, forced out of their countries and did not have the option, they are struggling in schools. They are doing really, really badly. And it's only if you break down that data, you will see that. And just with the history of immigration, America seeks out the doctors and the lawyers. So yes, we seem like we're smart, but it's because America is recruiting all these smarter people. They're taking them out of those countries. And those are the people who are getting immigration that are getting green cards. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is rejected. Mm -hmm. So it's just very, very, very complex. You can't break it into one. You can't make it fit into one Asian American category. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I appreciate your perspective saying that, you know, it depends on the communities that were forced out of their home countries versus recruited out or a choice was made to leave. Um, you know, just last week with my episode on immigration, the, just the reality of being somebody who has to flee your home versus somebody who has the choice. Mm-hmm. So, and, and what you said, Miriam, too, just about the huge diversity within the Asian American community. I mean, I feel like it's a huge disservice just even on this episode for me to be presuming that we can talk about this one monolithic community, because I know that we can't. Um, but for the sake of just trying to get the conversation going, that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. And in the hierarchy, too, even within the mm-hmm. community, that's really, really interesting. Um, maybe we can flesh that out a little bit more. What it, What is... What are the conversations like within the Asian American community right now? And, and maybe you guys want to you want to direct the conversation a little bit towards the pandemic and what life has been like in the last year and what conversations are like amongst maybe your other Korean American friends or friends that you have who are not Korean American, but are still Asian American. What are the varying responses? Maybe, maybe you could start with your response to the last year and then maybe how it's different from others and how you guys perceive things in varied ways. I know that's a huge question. Thank you for (laughs) your willingness to try to take it on. Um, I think when the pandemic first started, I was just like, okay, you know, like I was in first year med school, just trying to survive. Didn't really think too much of 
the consequences that, you know, being in a pandemic could lead to. Um, But more and more, like, in March, April, May, um, that was when I started being more aware of a lot of the different, um, like, acts of racism that had been going on towards the Asian American community. Um, And that was kind of when it started to become a lot more real. Mm. Um, I did have a friend who lives in SoCal right now. She lives um, near UCLA. And um, at the time, she posted, um, like, a status saying that when she went to the market, um, she was wearing masks. And this was around the time when, like, um, I think the CDC was discouraging us from wearing masks in order to... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, this was around the time when we still were not sure whether we should wear masks or not. Um, Or it might have been very recently after we had been told to wear masks. Um, But she wrote that, you know, she and her boyfriend at the time were wearing masks and they um, got yelled at um, verbally, like, and, you know, she wrote about that experience and was like, this was like one, like, this was a very scary moment for me. Like, this is some, this is a place I called home and I had lived for the past five years. And to have that happen was just, I think, something that really, really opened her eyes to the state of the world. Um, yeah, and for me personally, it, it made me a lot more fearful, um, not only for me, but a lot for my parents and my family. Um, that was, that was the hard thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think for me, um, just the last, pre, before moving to Colorado, I had lived in California, um, about six years or so. So it's it's a lot more diverse there. And I think when the pandemic hit in the beginning, um, I think I kind of felt a lot more paranoid and a lot more aware of it. Um, there were just several instances and I call them, I mean, people call them like microaggressions. It's not just flat out racism, but it's kind of daily stressors that add on over time. And just my husband and I were going to um, get some food at Burger King. And this was during the pandemic. We were wearing masks and we were in line you know, to get some food from Burger King. And we see how all the cars are getting their food. The person at the window is handing them the bag with the food in it. And we drive up and the person puts our food on a tray and then hands us the tray. Mm -hmm. And it's like things that most people would not notice, but I just Mm -hmm. felt like, you know, they're treating us a little bit differently. And I remember Mm -hmm. um, my husband and I were grocery shopping at King Supers in Parker. And, you know, people are trying to stay six feet apart, but as soon as we walk down the aisle, everybody would clear out and there would be tons of space made just for us. And this was kind of like that at the beginning of the pandemic. And I think my husband and I started getting kind of paranoid and we had talks about, should we go back to California? Is it safe for Mm -hmm. us to be in Colorado? You know, like it's not, it was just these little microaggressions, but Mm -hmm. you just never know when these microaggressions are going to turn into acts of violence. Mm -hmm. So we were kind of fearful. But even in California, we knew, like, it's the grandparents in San Francisco. It's one of the most diverse places, one of the most places we'll find Asian people. But it's grandparents, elderly people who are taking the bus in San Francisco who are getting attacked. And even in San Diego, my sister-in-law, she um, 
she was telling me that her friend, when she was trying to buy hand sanitizer, the person at Target, Target wouldn't give it to her, even though it was in the back, because, and she said, your people are buying, like, hoarding these things. I'm not going to give you any. Mm-hmm. And just these things, even in one of the most diverse places, like, discrimination is still happening. Yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing up just these daily stressors. I think um, in my conversations with my Asian American friends over the last six months, 12 months, that has really come to the surface is um, there's just increased anxiety, increased fear, increased worry, because these things are happening to you personally, as well as to your friends. And you're hearing about it from other family members and other community members. And even if the act isn't violent, it makes you very aware that you're, you as a person are less valued, less respected, less wanted in that community. And that can really affect your daily life and your decisions about where you go and what you do. Um, and that is something that those of us in the majority culture simply do not ever confront. You know, we, we are never sitting down at the lunch table, opening up our lunchbox and being told that smells bad. We're never looking at the TV screen going, you know, I want to be a different color. I want to be a different ethnicity because we're represented and we don't experience the parting of the people when we walk down the aisle at King Supers. And so these are things that I think many of us in the majority culture are unaware of and easily maybe sweep under the rug, maybe minimize and say like, um, I don't, I don't really believe that's happening to you or I don't, you know, oh, you know, that's just one person that's just one time. Like that's not normal. You're imagining, you're imagining this mistreatment. And, um, I think that, uh, I can imagine to not have not be believed and to not have your anxiety validated, um, just sort of increases that racialized trauma, um, of what you're experiencing. So I appreciate you sharing that so that we can have a better idea of what life is like in your shoes. Um, thank you for sharing those stories. Um, I'm interested in your take on, do you feel like the sentiment, anti-Asian sentiments and, um, maybe just, yeah, sentiment, the feelings have changed in the United States over the last year? Or do you think that those feelings and perceptions and sentiments were there and then the pandemic sort of brought them to the surface? I mean, maybe talk a little bit about historically, your family's experience, your experience. Um, and if you think, if you think that things, you know, how the pandemic has played into what was already there or maybe what wasn't there, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I feel like it's something that was always there, like kind of, you know, like with the overview you gave in the beginning, like with history, Asians have always been othered, but I feel like it's, it's during these times, it's during times of crisis, like the pandemic, when you want someone to blame, it's easy for um, Asians to be targeted and just, um, mm-hmm. yeah, for it to be brought to the light. Um, I feel like it has been accentuated, I guess, over this past year, but I feel like it's just brought to something light that has always been there. We mm-hmm. have never belonged here. We mm-hmm. have always been othered. Yeah, that's heavy. Yeah. Um, I know that this is opening up a whole nother direction of the conversation and it's multi-layered and we are not going to be able to do it total justice, but could you speak to and just open our eyes a little bit to the specific vulnerabilities of Asian American women? Maybe speak a little bit to the history as, as you just said really well, Esther, the otherization Mm -hmm. 
Um, I think that's, you know, experienced even more acutely for females. Can you talk to us about that? I feel like, um, kind of like when you brought the Chinese Exclusion Act, um, before that, maybe a decade or a little bit more before that, there was something called the Page Act, and that was actually targeted just towards Chinese women. Mm -hmm. And it basically, the idea was that they had equated Chinese women with prostitutes, and they had hypersexualized, you know, Asian women had labeled all Chinese women as prostitutes. And it's always, and even if you see throughout um, media, Mm -hmm. like, Asian men have usually been emasculated and Asian women have been hypersexualized mm-hmm. and it's just been fetishized and it's just this weird sexual place that they have put us into. <laughs> um, my friends and I were actually kind of talking about this yesterday as well. Um, when we first heard news about the shooting in Georgia and how um, they they were at massage parlors, um, one of my friends was like, oh, I, th- I thought it was kind of weird that they were bringing sex work into this um, because, or like it was automatically kind of assumed by the media that like sex workers had been murdered, uh, sex workers had been targeted. Um, and like she was saying that it kind of like, it, felt a little unsettling Mm. because even though not a lot of information had been released at that time, like that was kind of where the direction that the media had taken it. Mm. And she was kind of saying, you know, that kind of shows how like Asian women, massage parlors, those things have kind of are like buzzwords almost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And indicative of the sexualization, the fetishes, Fetis, I can't say that it's word. It's a hard word. I'm so word. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, it's hard. It's a hard word to say. Um, and the, and just the ways in which um, Asian women had been fetishized. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought that was a very interesting, interesting point that she brought up. Yeah. Um, yeah, and also I think for for me as like a single um, Asian American woman. Um, it, it, it is definitely kind of on the back of my mind. Um, if someone does express interest Mm -hmm. and they're not a part of the Asian American community, it's either, okay, like I've been getting messaging that like it, like that I would not be desirable or attractive to this person. But at the same time, like, how do I know this person isn't also, like, attracted to me because mm-hmm. I'm exotic. Mm-hmm. And they have a word for it, yellow fever. Yeah, like, <laughs> how do I know this person doesn't hasn't, like, caught yellow fever, right. you know? Um, so that's also a very interesting, um, interesting, like, way of thinking mm-hmm. that I have been kind of, like, reflecting on recently as well. Yeah. Yeah, what were some of the thoughts that you guys had after the shooting in Atlanta? Um, what what was your week like? I feel like besides the shooting itself, I feel like the reaction has been even more discouraging and how it was played out was devastating and especially as a Christian and and I think you and I I wasn't surprised but I just felt so devastated and so discouraged. You see that with the shooter, they, they, and this just has happened in the past when it's a white shooter, there's this humanization of like, 
police officer says he's had a bad day. Mm-hmm. They interview his family. And then you see how they respond with the victims. Like, we haven't heard any interviews from family, and I know it's a lot more complicated. And also, it might be a language issue. It might be because a lot of Asians keep to themselves. It might be, like, we just want to save face. I know it's multifaceted, but I think the fact that we humanize this white murderer and we just kind of forget about the victims, and it's just like... I think it's just horrific, and I just feel like as a Christian, we like humanize and we see the Imago Day in the shooter, but we don't see the Imago Day. We see them as temptations. We see them as mm. sex objects. It's just, and they were like, we don't. I, I I don't know if there's conclusive evidence, but like, there wasn't no direct evidence that they were even sex workers. Like it's, mm-hmm. they were people, and we're not talking about their families. We're not talking about. And it's just, like, it's only when I saw in the social media, like, I see, um, and I only see my Asian-American friends talking about it. I only see my Asian-American friends posting about it. And I saw how a single Korean-American mother, I think she was, like, in her 40s or 50s, she left behind two kids, and they don't have any family in in the States. They're all in Korea. But you don't really get media coverage about this. I only know this because he had a GoFundMe. Um... Or just, yeah, I don't see other people really talking about it. And I think for me, it's just like seeing their names, especially when I saw it written in Chinese characters and written in Korean mm-hmm. characters, that's when it really hit me. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh my goodness, we're not talking about it. We don't, we don't really know what these people, like we're not talking about the victims, but they were the victims. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot. You make really good points, Esther. Thank you. I could not shake my head enough. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I could not. Yeah. Like, yeah. I think you, you said it best, Esther. Um, although one thing that I do want to add is, um, like just to even make it more personal, um, my roommate's boyfriend, uh, actually was in like chatting on discord with some of his other gamer friends. And, um, I think, like, a mutual friend joined them um, and was actually working on the GoFundMe page. He turned out to be the son of one of the victims. Oh, um, Yeah, and so um, that was, like, really crazy for me to hear mm-hmm. because, like, for something that seemed, you know, like, you know, all the way in Georgia, like, I found myself, like, listening to this person's story through, you know my, my roommate's boyfriend. Um, and that was what made me even more infuriated when, you know, the, the sheriff said, you know, this guy was having a bad day. Mm. Well, you know, the families of Mm. the victims, this is something that they're going to have to live with for the rest of their life. Right. Um, yeah, you know, like they, he he was the the person who was like I think writing the GoFundMe, you know had a younger brother, who was still in college, um, and so you know like, college is expensive, mm. loans yeah. are expensive, um, yeah. So that was that was crazy. I think you you sort of summed up kind of a theme that I'm hearing through this whole conversation, and that is the the centering and the making the the majority culture person, the white person in the story, the center of the story, rather than the others. 
um, and truly otherizing the others, you know, rather than centering their stories. Um, and that's something that I feel like I keep hearing, whether it's food or media or stories or fashion or just your the perception of the um, wider community or the nation. It's just this centering of the majority culture story and voice at the expense, uh, the very grave expense of others. So thank you for speaking to that. Um, starting to maybe wrap it up a little bit, even though I feel like we could talk for hours, I would love to hear more for hours, but, um, we are all sisters in Christ. We're all, we all follow Jesus. And, um, I know that our heart is for the church to grow and learn. So what do you want the church, the church in Parker, the church in Colorado, the church in the United States? What, what do you want to say? What, what can your family in Christ know better, do better? How can we, as your siblings in the faith, um, be agents for change and progress and healing rather than what I'm afraid is probably often true. And that's maybe part of the problem, (laughs) um, committing microaggressions against you, even, you know, on a regular basis, um, without knowing better or doing better. But now if they've listened to this far and they know better. So uh, when we know better, we want to do better. So what, what do you, what would you like to be said, to, especially to specifically to your family in Christ? I think having the heart to listen and making mm-hmm. the space. Cause I feel like even culturally, like Asians, we don't make the space for ourselves. We accommodate and our voices, like most of the time they're quiet. We wait for our turn to speak. We don't speak up, but I think asking, making space, going out of your ways, and that might mean you might have to listen more. That might mean trying to find pauses and, I don't know, making space just to listen and knowing that our experience is not the same. Mm. That's good. Yeah. I think, um, like, that was great. Yeah. I think also, like, sharing. Share our stories. Um find out more about, um, like, the narratives of AAPI. Um, And maybe even, like, you know, check out uh, or, like, look up information about church history in, like, other API countries. Um, Mm -hmm. That's something that I kind of thought was pretty interesting. Like, the the history of Christianity in Korea is very, Mm -hmm. very interesting. So... I don't know, maybe like looking into stories like that could also be a good way to honor the narratives of API. Yeah, that's good. I think, yeah, Christian Americans might find that the church in other countries, Korea especially, but throughout the world is vital, strong, full of renewal and revival. And um, what an honor to have siblings in Christ who are of other ethnicities and other nationalities um, help us to see more clearly who God is through his image in them. And that often is so what, so what often what I want to do on this podcast is just honor the image of God in his image bearers. And um, you guys have really helped us to do that in this episode is to just love God and love neighbor and understand better and respect more his image and other people. So, um, again, I can't, I I just apologize because I know we're only scratching the surface, but I am really grateful to both of you for being willing to 
share your voice with us and to speak into this. And I hope that for those who are listening, that it's um, just the beginning. I hope that they will seek out their Asian American friends, that they'll look into history, that they'll look around and begin, as you said, to listen with empathy and with understanding. So thank you both so much for being on the show. Thank you, Jen. We appreciate it. Yeah, we really do. Thank you so much. Of course. Well, thank you for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now.